for the kids' lesson, you're welcome to head on there. You can go to the back lobby and they'll be taken on up. Uh, This morning we are uh, continuing our way through the Gospel of Mark, and if you have a device or whatever would like to follow along with us, we'll be in Mark chapter 14 in particular. Uh, Just last week we saw Jesus' last, uh, the Last Supper meal uh, with his disciples, where he uh, predicted that he was going to be betrayed and um, where also he, he celebrated that Passover meal with them, but he also, in a way, changed that meal, didn't he? As he took that meal and gave us the Lord's Supper, a time where we are reminded of the Lord's death. Um, and this morning, as we, we continue in the passage, we see them going out from the Lord's Supper and Jesus continuing his way, a way that's going to take him all the way to the cross. Let's look to the passage now, starting in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here and pray. And he he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground. And prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. O Father, would you Would you bless our time together in your word this morning? Would you speak to us? We need your presence and ask that you would send Holy Spirit to apply your words to our hearts this day that we would see Jesus. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen. This morning, we see the disciples and Jesus, and as as we see them, we're actually going to see a great contrast between the two. They are both facing a time of temptation, and they handle it very, very differently, as we see in the the, the passage. I don't know if any of you know who David Brooks is. He's a a writer for the New York Times, and a little while back, he, he wrote something And he was talking about World War II, and he'd studied a lot of World War II, in particular the victory after World War II. And he said this, he said, I was really struck at the supreme moment of American triumph, that they weren't beating their chests. They weren't super proud of themselves. They were 
He said, deeply humble. And I found that so beautiful and moving. And I thought there's really something to admire in that kind of culture. And then a few days or whatever later, he was watching an NFL game. And, uh, you know, the quarterback makes the pass, the receiver gets it, he makes only two yards whenever the, the defender just totally takes him down. And of course, what happens? What does the defender do? He jumps up and starts having his little celebration like the greatest thing that the world has ever known just took place, right? We, we've been there, we've watched it. And he, and he saw this and he said, it occurred to me that I've just watched more self-celebration after a two-yard gain than I'd heard after the United States won World War II. Now, how accurate he is in those depictions, there is something to say about that. We love to celebrate things, right? And our culture does, and we, we see it around, and, and we love victory dances. We love the idea that we can do it, don't we? That we can somehow pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. And in this passage this morning, we see a great contrast, or we're going to see a great contrast between the disciples and between Jesus and how they face a time of temptation of that last hour before Jesus begins to really make his way to the cross whenever he's arrested our passage this morning, it begins after that meal of the Last Supper. The disciples and Jesus, they, they sing a hymn and then they retreat to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus immediately, he tells them something. Verse 27, he says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah and Zechariah was talking about how what, what, what happens whenever the shepherd is suddenly gone? What do the sheep do? They scatter, they, 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 they run away. The image uh, uh, from, from Zechariah just comes alive before him. He tells the disciples, this, this is going to be true of you. When, when I'm struck down, you know what's going to happen? Y'all are just going to all scatter. And, and then Peter, Peter being the big guy, right? The, the, the one who tends to be a little brash. What does he stand up and say? He says, and he starts pointing at all the other disciples. Even though they all fall away, I, I, Peter, will not. No way. Now, Jesus, just to make sure Peter understands what he just said, he says, truly, truly, I, I tell you, this, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Again, he's talking to Peter. Peter doesn't take this too well. He says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the other disciples around him, they all said the same thing. They all agree with Peter. This great moment of, of what are the disciples doing? They're all standing up and saying, we got your back, Jesus. We're going to watch over you. Peter stands up and he's kind of saying, I'm greater than all of them. I mean, I can just imagine the moment. Peter's kind of like standing up and, and he's looking around. He says, I would never... Now him and him and, yeah, maybe some of them could, but me? No, I, I would never. He, he, he stands up with brashness. He, he stands up with a pride. I would never do that to you with a sense of arrogance. I can do this. I'm Peter. I'm strong enough. I'm big enough. If I must die with you, he says. And it's there that we see that Peter still doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand. Jesus has told him what over and over again. He's told them how he must suffer. He's told them how he was going to be rejected and, and ultimately killed. 
And Peter seems to still be holding out hope for something else. Maybe still holding out hope that somehow he's going to be, Jesus is going to set up a kingdom and that it's going to be right there in Jerusalem and he's still holding out hope. He doesn't seem to have heard Jesus. He still doesn't get it. And the rest of the disciples, what do they do? They stand up and they say, yeah, we're with Peter. Exactly what he said. We're, we're, we're never going to abandon you, Jesus. Never. Ever. Jesus is, of course, by these words, he's trying to warn his disciples of what's coming. He's trying to let them know what's coming and you're going to be tempted, he's saying to them. What are you going to do in that hour of temptation? Later on in our passage, down at verse 38, what is it that he told the disciples to do? He, he tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, the, by their responses, you see that their spirits seem to be willing, right? They seem to be all for Jesus, but we quickly see in our passage that the flesh that they thought was so strong, that they thought was, yes, we can do this, we're by your side, Jesus, we see how weak their flesh is, their teacher, their, their, their dear friend makes clear to them his need, right? Look at verse 33. He, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, what? My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And how do Peter, James, and John, these are like the all, you know, the disciples are like all-stars, right? And he's taken with him like the all-stars of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and what do they do? They sleep. And they fall asleep not just once, not twice, but three times. And this is after that bold proclamation of how they're by Jesus' side, right? Jesus comes to them, verse 37. He found them sleeping, and he says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Think of it for a moment. How could they sleep? The, the one who, who they claim that they will go to the death with, and they can't even watch and pray with him. Why are they sleeping? Are, are they so confident in their flesh? Oh, we got this. We can sleep. We don't need to watch and pray. We're going to be by your side, Jesus. We're strong enough. We're powerful enough. Sometimes you and I, we act like that in the face of temptation, don't we? We act like we can do it. Or maybe, maybe they were doing what we also sometimes do whenever difficulty comes where we go and hide, right? And we hide in all sorts of things. Difficult times come, so we go and we escape. We, we go to our drug of choice, if you will. Maybe it's mindless entertainment. Maybe you actually go to some sort of addiction that you've developed, and, and you go to these places running away from the temptation that you face. And actually, what you're doing is, you see, running in to the temptation itself. And it's in the context of all of this, and, we, and we've missed something here. We, we, we skipped over a little passage in verse 28, where in the midst of all of this, and Jesus predicting what they're going to do, he also gives them a promise, and we shouldn't miss this. He tells them, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus promises that they're deserting. They're going to desert him, he says, but they're deserting. It's not going to be final. It's not going to be the last word. And the disciples seemed to have totally missed that part, didn't they? 
But there's something beautiful because these words that you see before you, I will go up before you to Galilee, they come true at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 6. The angel of the Lord, what what does he say? Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And then hear these words. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus' words here are fulfilled. He's waiting for his disciples. He's waiting for the ones who scattered. The ones who ran as soon as he was arrested. He's waiting for them. Waiting for them to come home. And it's in this context, I I hope we're amazed by something, that this passage that we're looking at this morning, it's amazing that this ended up in the Bible. There are only a couple of people who knew about the sleeping disciples. Okay? And so the only way this makes it in the Bible is if one of those let it leak. You know, like, I think after all this, I I might have had a powwow with the other two disciples and say, hey, you know, maybe can we keep that quiet? I mean, Jesus was telling us just how bad things were, and we slept, but yet we have it right here in front of us. And, and, and scholars tend to believe, and I, I think rightfully so, that most likely the Gospel of Mark comes to us largely from the mouth of Peter, that it, it's, it's in some ways Peter's Gospel to a degree that, 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 that Mark um, writes down for us with some other investigation he surely did. And so I think in a sense what we see here is the Apostle Paul's willingness, or Apostle Peter's willingness uh, to tell his story, to tell his story of his inability to see Jesus for who he really was. He shared his stubbornness. He let it show up in the gospel. He shared his pride. He shared his denial. And he shared that when his dear friend was clearly sorrowful, even to death, that he slept. And Peter shared that so that you and I can hear it today. So that we can hear the wonderful and incredible story of the gospel. Because Peter wanted his Savior to be made known, not himself. He was frail and feeble. His brashness and stubbornness and pride, it didn't get him anywhere. He tried. And it didn't work. And he faulted and he came up failing. And we're going to see him betray Jesus even more greatly as he denies him three times. But later on, Peter writes this. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. And and as I hear those words, I can't help but kind of think of Peter. That's Peter's response, right? To revile in return, to threaten in return. And Peter's saying, my Savior, he didn't do that. But Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now hear this. 
and the connection to our passage. For you were straying like sheep, just as Jesus said the disciples would. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Is Peter remembering the disciples scattering like sheep? Yet while they were faithless, he was faithful. While while they thought they could face temptation in the flesh and they could power through it, the God-man, Jesus Christ, faces temptation in a completely different way in our passage, doesn't he? And he succeeds. Some of you may have at some point or another read the novel Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. It's about a 19th century guy who, who time travels back to the days of King Arthur. And he convinces King Arthur to dress up like a peasant's garb and go out into the community and, and see how, if you will, the other half live. And King Arthur, he's, he's like completely thrown off by all that. Where's the pomp and circumstance? He, he doesn't quite get it, and it's quite comical. And then finally, <coughs> excuse me, finally, they come to a small shack that's occupied by a family of beggars. One of the, the daughters is already dead. The father is dead. Another daughter is up in the loft dying of smallpox. And the mom comes to the door. And she warns them, this place is under curse. And then King Arthur says, let me come in and help you. You're sick and in trouble. And he comes in. She has no clue who he is. She doesn't know that the king has just entered into her house, into this this house that is under curse of smallpox. And not knowing who he is, she asked him if he would mind climbing up to the loft and checking on his daughter. A few minutes later, he, he's coming down the ladder carrying this young girl of about 15. She's only half conscious, slowly dying of smallpox. And, and Mark Twain writes this. He says, here. Here was ho- heroism at its last and loftiest possibility. Its utmost summit, this was challenging death in the open field unarmed. With all the odds against the challenger, no reward set upon the conquest. The king, in this moment, carrying this little girl down the ladder. He was great now, sublimely great, in a moment of great humility. in the moment that we're reading about this morning in the garden. Jesus, I hope you understand and I hope we'll see, is great, sublimely great. He's the loftiest heroism this world has ever known. It's almost at its summit here in the garden. He was challenging death in the open field unarmed with all odds against the challenger. Here we see Jesus being bat- going to battle, being tempted. We think of the temptation of Jesus, we usually think of those three in the wilderness, right? I hope you understand before us this morning is another temptation of Jesus. So that final moment, can he walk this path that is set before him? And it's here in the moment of this temptation that we see the humanity of Jesus. We see that he is a real man, the real human nature like ours, 
He's not some superman. We see the fullness of his human nature on display. Do you see it in verse 33? He's greatly distressed and troubled. This is Jesus. Greatly distressed and troubled. One commentator calls it, he's experiencing shuddering horror. Don't miss how difficult this moment is. And what does he say? Verse 34. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. The, the sorrow of, of Jesus at this moment, it, it's overwhelming. The greatest sorrow, I think, that we've, this world has ever known. And why is he so distressed? I hope you know it's, it's not over the brutality of his death that's coming. But it's over this cup that he speaks of that he's going to have to drink. That he asked the Father to please remove from him. Sinclair Ferguson puts it beautifully. He says this. He says, Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life. The one thing in life he really feared. Not the cruel death which would end it. He knew he would rise again. But the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God forsaken. He felt he could not live indeed, that life was not worth living without the consciousness of his Father's love for him. You see, Jesus, in that moment, he knew that he was going to have to say those terrible, terrible words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was facing the horror of God-forsakenness. And I hope maybe for us at this moment, we realize and can see that our, that our Savior, that Jesus knows the pain of the darkest hours in our lives. He's been there. He's experienced the darkest hour. And he was God forsaken for us so that we would never have to be, so that we could be welcomed by the loving arms of the Father. And it's in the midst of this turmoil of his soul that he's abandoned, isn't he? He finds himself all alone. His disciples, they're just sleeping. Remember how they Earlier, whenever he was sleeping amidst the storm in the stern of the boat, remember what they said? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, they choose to fall asleep when he's told them of his distress, of his trouble, and his sorrow. And it's in the midst of this that we see one of the most telling moments in Jesus' life. In his hour of need, in a moment when his temptation to abandon the path that is laid out before him must have been at its apex, he doesn't take the root of the disciples, does he? The one who came from the Father's throne above, who was the God-man, 
did not respond with brashness or pride and saying, I can do this. I'm big enough and I'm strong enough. Nothing of the kind instead. He responds in what may have been, must have been, is the greatest humility this world has ever seen. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus here, he pleads with the Father, doesn't he? He pleads with the Father in the midst of his darkest hour for help, for assistance. The path before him was too great. Was there some way that this cup could be taken from him? Was there some way that he would not have to taste of the wrath of God? Was there some way that he could not be the God-forsaken one? This was a real request. In his humanity, in his human will, Jesus says, please, no. But at the same time, an amazing part, in the midst of this, he's willing to submit to the Father. And he says, not what I will, but what you will What an incredible story of our Savior. If you were writing the story of a Savior, it probably wouldn't look like this, or maybe if I was writing it. I don't know that my Savior would quite match up with necessarily with Peter, but he'd probably have a little bit more brashness in this and be ready to go head on into battle, right? Instead, we see a moment of weakness and great humility in the garden. We don't see the the boldness of Peter if you will, and the boldness of the disciples saying we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You see, if he had, that would have been the same story as the first Adam. Remember the first Adam in the garden, in the Garden of Eden? He chose to look at the fruit and determine his own path. He looked at the fruit and he said, well, I know what God's will is right now, but I'm choosing my own will right now. Here in our passage, we have the second Adam, right? Jesus Christ. He's in a garden too, in the garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden, he he chooses not to determine his own path. Based on his own will. But he chooses to follow the will of the Father who sent him. Folks, this should tell us some very important things, I think about the way we live, about the way we struggle and deal with temptation in our own lives. Do you face temptation? And face it, if you will, like the disciples do and think, I got this. You know, I got this. I can beat it. I can beat this temptation. I can make it stop. How's your success record going? How well are you doing at battling it on your own? You see, temptation is not defeated with brashness and boldness. Temptation is defeated on our knees. As we come and as we we go before the Father asking Him to give Holy Spirit to us to guard us, protect us, and, and walk with us. 
Jesus is, in a sense, showing us a path of how to, how to deal with temptation. Temptation comes to him on that night in the garden. And he stands up to it. But he doesn't stand up to it through his own power and his own strength. He stands up to it in his humility and in prayer and in trusting and relying on the work of his Father and the work of Holy Spirit in his life. Please don't miss it. Please don't also miss that Jesus is the type of leader that we should long for. The type of leader we should long to be in our own lives and the places where we have ability to be leaders. To lead with this kind of humility that we see with Jesus. So Jesus requests that this cup might pass from him. What is the response of the Father? It's not verbalized in our passage. It's not written out. But the response is, Son, no, I will not remove this cup from you. What an unbelievable moment. The Father says no to the Son. And please, if you haven't listened to anything up until now, please don't miss this. Why? Why does the Father say no to the Son? It's here that we see the incredible love of the Father, the incredible love of the Son for you and for me on full display. The Son willingly says, but what you will. Father, what you will. And the Father, because he loved us, refused the request of his Son as I thought through this, I was reminded of that story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham had waited for a very, very long time for that son of the promise. The son that he'd been promised, and he became very, very old until, and then finally the son is born, Isaac is born. And he must have been so excited. And then that day came where God calls out to him and says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him up there as a burnt offering. The unthinkable. But Abraham has grown in his faith. And he trusts God. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he trusted if, if he went through with this, somehow God was gonna, must be going to raise Isaac from the dead. He trusted his heavenly father that much. And so he goes. And they go up on top of the mountain. The sacrifice is prepared. And he begins to drop the knife. And God calls out to him, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and what did he see? Behold him, behind him, was a ram caught in the thickets with his horns, a, a replacement sacrifice so that Isaac would not have to die. God provided a way out. God provided another way for Abraham. This time, this story, before us, there is no ram. And there is going to be no ram caught in the thicket. God the Father was, was going through the very things, if you will, that, that Abraham was doing. He was going 
but he went through with it. He was going to have his son drink that cup of wrath for you and me. It's incredible. It's, it's mind-boggling to even think of. And, and, and how does the son respond to all of this? He's asked the father. The father said no. Verse 41. He came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus had an answer from the Father. And he stood up. And he went out resolutely on the path that was set before him. Out of his love for you and I. As we read from Peter earlier, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Please don't miss. Jesus experienced the darkest night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He took on the very thing that he feared most, being the God-forsaken one, because he loved you and me. Because you and I were straying like lost sheep. My question for you this morning is have you returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul? The disciples returned. Have you? Will you? Oh, Father, um, this is a heavy passage, but yet we, in the midst of it, are reminded of the wonder of the gospel, that you would send your only son to die so that we might have life, to make us right with you. That by his wounds, we would be able to be healed. He took our sin so that we might be righteous in your eyes if we'd only believe and trust in him. Father, would you help us to believe? Would you help us to trust in you? our great shepherd, the one who came and who paid it all so that we might have eternal life. We thank you. We thank you for allowing your son to do the unthinkable and to drink that cup 
for us. We say thank you. Such feeble words in response to such a great and awesome outpouring of love by you for us. But we say thank you. And we pray this all in the matchless name of the shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ. Amen.